Foster children eventually grow up. Some 20,000 reach 18 years of age each year, and then they're on their own. Concerned that many of them ended up homeless, my next guest organized a federal housing voucher program for them. He's deputy director for the Housing Voucher Management and Operations Division at Housing and Urban Development and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Ryan Jones. Mr. Jones, good to have you on. Great to be with you, Tom. And we should acknowledge you are part of a group award, and you are joined in the award with Michelle Daniels and Charles Eldridge, also in that program, that could not join us this morning. But tell us what you're doing here. What is the situation you're trying to address here with foster children that have to, I guess, leave the foster homes at the age of 18? Yeah, maybe a little background would be helpful for your audience. So how it got started is HUD took a meeting in March of 2019 with current foster youth and foster youth alumni from Ohio, uh, with some of those participants being uh, young people still in high school. And these young people were brave enough to share their story on the challenges that foster youth may face when they age out of foster care. The problem that we wanna solve and that we were working together to discuss was, uh, as you mentioned, the high prevalence of homelessness experienced by youth that have aged out of the foster care, a number as high as 25% experience homelessness by the time they reach their mid-20s. In their story, they shared how critical it is for young people like themselves to have access to decent, safe, and affordable housing. And they shared a plan for a new model for making housing choice vouchers targeted to youth available in communities across the country. Their plan was the bedrock of what would become the Foster Youth Independence Initiative that HUD launched in the summer of 2019. Got it. And just a question about where they are emerging from in foster care, because isn't it sometimes that they are with families and do they have to leave at 18? You know, people with their own children often let them live at home until they're independent financially. What's going on in the foster system that's causing this? You know, it can be a multitude of things. And, you know, I'm not an expert in the child welfare space. You know, I am a houser. But the young people that are presenting to us and to the doors of our housing agencies are, are coming to the housing agencies having a myriad of experiences in the child welfare space. Many of them may have had a successful experience in the child welfare space, but just given the challenges of independence at the point that they have uh, left foster care, that, you know, they just needed this additional helping hand in housing. They needed a platform so that they could reach and achieve their goals towards their path to self-sufficiency. Sure. And in conceiving this program, did it require legislation to enable HUD to spend money on it? Yes, thankfully. And the young people that we met with, they realized that HUD already had the statutory authority that needed to stand up this program. Uh, What we did uh, after meeting with these young people is took their message to heart and looked at our statutes and the flexibilities that we have and the fungibility with some of our funding and found a way to make it work in the first year. Uh, You know, this was really a trial when we first launched this program. We were able to tap into and using the flexibilities that Congress had provided us to stand up this program. And since that initial year, Congress in the last two appropriations have specifically provided funding for foster youth to provide housing choice vouchers for this population, given the success that we had in the first year of the program. We're speaking with Ryan Jones. He's deputy director for the Housing Voucher Management and Operations Division at Housing and Urban Development and also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And just briefly tell us how the program works. 
How do you get in touch with the people that might need the vouchers, or how do they find HUD, and then what happens? Sure. So a little background on what is the Foster Youth Independence. So it's a HUD program promoting partnerships between public housing agencies and public child welfare agencies, where community is able to request housing choice vouchers to serve youth under the age of 25 with a history of child welfare involvement that are at risk of experiencing homelessness. So the idea is to set these young people on a path to reach their education and employment goals and ultimately on a path to self-sufficiency. These targeted housing choice vouchers, they allow the participants to find their own housing on the private market where the funding provided by HUD to the housing agency makes up the difference in what the young person may pay in rent and what the actual rent is so that a young person is generally paying no more than 30% of their income towards rent. So the front door to this program is your local child welfare agency that many uh, of the young people that are still in the child welfare program are engaged in. Or for those that no longer have a connection to the child welfare agency, the front door can be myriad. It can be reaching out to a local public housing agency or reaching out to local homeless service providers that can put that young person in connection with the child welfare agency that can help start that process. It sounds like some of the success of the program depends on making sure that those public housing agencies or the service providers are fully aware of this should the person present themselves to them. Yes, absolutely. You know, when we launched in the summer of 2019, you know, not only did we put a lot of work into uh, designing a program that is easy to access, that works for communities, but we also spent a lot of time thinking about how we get the message out to communities about this opportunity. And one of the co-recipients of the SAMI's uh, nomination, Charles Eldridge, is our cheerleader for the Foster Youth Independence Initiative in our HUD regions. And it's because of the work of our Office of Field Operations. Those are our boots on the ground in the local communities that they are reaching out to and working with and collaborating with our housing agencies, with our child welfare agencies, with our other partners that are critical to identifying this opportunity and making this work at a community level. And I found that many times the Sammy's awardees are people that have a particular passion for the work. It's not just a job. Tell us about yourself, how you got into this and your interest in housing, the people that are sometimes having trouble getting housing. Yeah, like so many that find themselves in public service, I was driven by the mission of HUD and specifically the mission of the Housing Choice Voucher Program, the ability to provide housing choice voucher to a family to be able to find safe, decent, affordable housing. I can't imagine a better mission and effort to be working on. So, you know, like many, I was driven to public service and the conversations that I have with the families that are recipients of this assistance in the communities that benefit from having this resource to ensuring that our low and very low income families have a place to call home. Uh, these are critical members of every community, and, and they deserve to have a, a place to call home. And that's what drives us at HUD is just making sure that we have a program that works for uh, the recipients. And, you know, what, you know, our moving forward is just continue to open and keep that dialogue with especially the recipients of FYI to make sure we have a program that's working for them. That's how this program came about is by listening to those with lived experiences and I think that's what will continue to drive us moving forward. And do you have any idea of the numbers you have served so far in the two years the program has been operating? 
so far, we've served uh, more than a thousand families, more than ten million dollars, and three dozen states. This program is uh, available, and and that's just the start. Every day, every month, we're making new awards. We're reaching out to more communities that may be interested in administering this assistance and expanding access to this program for those that would be eligible and interested. Sounds like a good investment. Ryan Jones is Deputy Director for the Housing Voucher Management and Operations Division at Housing and Urban Development, and along with HUD's Michelle Daniels and Charles Eldridge, a finalist in this year's Service to America's Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments saying, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. 
literally. And there was another candidate who ran as Vice President White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.